Welcome to the Sword on the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thank you all for listening in to the Sword on the Trowel. I wish I knew what uh, what number this was. I'd say This it right is now. number 30... It's like 30-something, Number 30. This it just like, came to me. It came to me. 37. Wow. Wow. Yes. Thank came to me in a direct revelation from Hannah. Yes. Um, hey, we're able to do this in part because of our fan members, the Founders Alliance members, and uh, those who support us monthly at different levels, the sword level, the shield level, the trowel level. Uh, they get access to different resources. One of those resources, they get to join into the armory where you're doing the pastoral epistles. Those are already dropping right now. Uh, the pastoral epistles with Pastor Tom. And so, boy, to access that content, Check out founders.org and what it means to join the fam. We also want to let you all know that we're going to be at the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, that's coming up in June, and we're going to have a special Founders Seminar. Uh, that Founders Seminar is going to be before the convention, so if you're coming to the convention, come out a day early. Monday, June 10th, uh, we're going to hold a Founders Seminar called Mature Manhood in an immature age. Mm. Look out, there's all kinds of immaturity going on. What's it mean to be a man, be a man, to act like men today? So we're looking forward to addressing that topic. It's a hot topic and it's hotter than a lot of people realize, I think. Yeah. So um, check out founders.org. You will find the that uh, founder seminar there under our events and sign up for it, register for it. We'd love to see you there Monday, June 10th. In our first session here, we want to talk about uh, the myth of neutrality, the myth of neutrality. This is an important concept for people to understand. Uh, one way to, to think about it is to say not whether, but which. Realize there is no neutral ground in this world. It's Whatever you're dealing with is going to be not whether, but which. Well, so, yes and no. Uh, well, yes and no. <laughs> so so uh, it's not whether there will be a Lord, but which Lord mm-hmm. there will be. Or standard. It's not whether there will be a standard, but which standard uh, there will be. It's not even whether we will impose more morality as a society, but which morality are we going to impose? And this is a key concept for Christians to get, especially now, uh, because say you're out there and you're advocating against abortion. You say that we, we want to end abortion in this land. And then somebody says to you, hey, uh, don't impose your Christian morality on me. That's right. You know? Let's be tolerant. Yeah. Be tolerant. I'm going to impose my view of tolerance on you. Yeah. I, I do think many Christians in, in that position kind of get the thing. They think, okay, no goodness, I'm not supposed to do that. That's a bad thing to do. Right. But we need to see there's no neutrality here. And the response can be, well, um, yes, I do want to impose my morality mm-hmm. on you. That's kind of what it means to be in a society. We're going to have laws and laws do just that. They impose morality. Uh, but then you help the person see, but you're doing the same thing. So mm-hmm. if, if a woman is going in and, and she's got a doctor to kill the baby in her womb, well, she and the doctor are imposing their, mor- their morality on the child. There's no way of escaping this kind of thing. There's mm-hmm. a, a morality is going to be imposed. And we are saying, yes, we don't want to impose an unjust morality on you. But there, there's this myth of neutrality going and on. People will uh, squirm at the idea of imposition as well. You know, you're just talking about coercing me. You're talking about forcing me. You're talking about uh, domineering over me, oppressing me. And so it's hard to even have the conversation today 
because all of that is operating in folks' minds and they feel like, oh my goodness, you know, here you are triggering me. I don't feel safe or here you are trying to lord it over me. And that's not what we mean at all. We mm. simply mean, look, there are realities in this world and God has orchestrated them, ordained them. Mm -hmm. It's his world. And to the degree that we recognize those realities and align with those realities according to his prescriptions, we are going to live well in mm -hmm. this world. That's mm -hmm. the best way to live. And to the degree that we rebel against them or anybody rebels against them, then they are actually uh, pursuing a way of life that is contrary to how they were designed to be lived. Mm -hmm. It is designed to be lived. And it's going to go poorly for them. Yeah. So this is a loving thing we're talking about. We're not talking about taking out a club, beating people over the head, saying you're going to believe like I believe or you're going to value and judge what the way I do. It's not that at all. Yeah. Mark chapter 9 and verse 40 in that text, Jesus says, For the one who is not against us is for us. The one who is not against us is for us. And then interestingly, he, he flips it in another text in Luke chapter 11 and verse 23, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Uh, but in either case, you're, you're against him or you're for him, but right. there's no, there's no middle ground. There's no, this, uh, this kind of idea that I'm indifferent. I, I, I I'm not, I'm not, I'm neutral. Even yeah. that, I, that word neutrality, uh, you hear the word neuter there, indifferent. When the car's in neutral, it's not in forward and it's not in reverse. I think many Christians consider the world that way. They, you know, well, this person out here is, is kind of neutral, not against Christ, not for Christ. But the reality is, though, though it may not be coming out as, as aggressively as it is from other persons, mm -hmm. but every person, you're either, you're, you're, you're uh, uh, a son of light or you're a son of darkness. You're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. Uh, these, are, these are the two options. And we need to be thinking that way because then you realize, oh, I, I'm supposed to go out into the world and I'm supposed to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ right. to those who are bound in darkness. And then I'm to teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. And doing so um, is not something that is heavy-handed telling people how to live, how to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that he's commanded. Uh, this is what we're doing. And, and it's going to come with some challenges because those who are not born again, well, they're going to be, they're against Christ. So, so we kind of we have to get over the idea that there is this neutral ground in the world. Yeah, exactly. And you know, Jesus makes it pretty clear in his statements. Yeah. How, how would you see this applying to education? Well, there's uh, all education is based on a moral understanding. Mm -hmm. And so there's no neutral education. It's either education that is aligned with reality that comes from God and values that and, and judges things in the light of that reality, or it's education that is based upon other standards and other foundations. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think for pastors and, and churches, for parents, for students, they need to recognize everything comes from a worldview. Everything yeah. comes from some kind of underlying foundation. And especially for our older students, you know, our high school age, college age students, whenever you're sitting in classrooms, you need to recognize that there's a foundation to the one who's leading that class. So let's press it a little bit. I mean, somebody might say, okay, I can understand that if we're talking about uh, the morality of Nazi Germany 
in Hitler. Mm-hmm. But but what if the education is just it's just mathematics? It's kind of it's cold. It's it, that doesn't really involve morality, right? I mean, two plus two equals four, and and can't that just be a neutral concept? Are you telling me there's got to be a, a a king over that? Well, I'm telling you that there is a king over that, whether you recognize it or not. And the reason that two plus two equals four is because of God. Mm. God's world is established by uh, God himself, and he established a world in which 2 plus 2 equals 4. Now, you can teach people how to add 2 plus 2 accurately without knowing God. Mm -hmm. We're not suggesting that at all. But if you are not consciously in submission to God, then before long, you you could say 2 plus 2 equals blue. And Mm. that's where we are going Mm. and largely are somewhat in our society today so that we see even in some of the educational philosophies that it's not that important to teach two plus two equal four. But how do you feel about that? Mm. You know, what does this make you feel like? And all these things get uh, mixed in in a way that something other than what God has said and what God has established in the world is operating. Yeah. What, the, what seems to happen is those, those who are committed uh, to pure reason, those who are committed uh, to man, so it's an, an exalted humanism, what they can do when Christians start to talk in terms of how we should live in society, how should we, we should go about our lives, they say, oh, well, you're referring to God. And, mm-hmm. and he's not permitted to come into this conversation right now. <laughs> and therefore, Christians kind of get back down on that. What we need to do is show that that uh, the people we're talking to are not neutral in those situations. Right. They've actually exalted man. There is a God of that system. There is, there is an ultimate standard to which they're appealing as well. And we need to help people understand that. This is the way that, that you're operating. You can't get away from identifying and, and operating on an ultimate standard, operating on a God of the system. So right. we're doing the same thing here. The question is, which one is actually going to result in uh, human flourishing in the world? And and the fact that when the humanist uses sound reason in order to make his case, he's taking up the very tools of mm. our worldview because God is the God who has made reason True. Mm. And so we, we need to see that too. It's like, you know, taking a, a little toddler who's angry at his dad, the dad picks him up, the toddler's just hitting at his dad, you know, and he thinks he's really venting on his dad. He wouldn't be able to do anything if his dad wouldn't hold him up. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, man. Hey, so think in terms of the myth of neutrality. It's not whether but which. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking about a book that really gets to the heart of that issue, a book by David Wells, yeah. an instrumental book that identifies the issues of modernity and kind of spells out how Christians should be no thinking in place the, for truth. No place for truth. coffee's good. It is good. And it tastes especially good in the Founder's Mug. Yeah, especially so, in the Founder's Mug. Yeah, we, on this segment, we want to uh, talk about a book that is one of the most significant books that's been published in the last 50 years among Christian evangelicals. It's David Wells' book, No Place for Truth, or Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology. Mm. This is the first book in a multi-volume 
project. I forget how many is it four or five. He's got he, a number of them. Yeah, several that uh, came after this, in which he's trying to establish what evangelical theology should be, showing what sadly has become of it. Mm-hmm. So this particular book uh, in 1993, when it came out, man, it was just like an atomic bomb on the uh, evangelical playground of the time. And I highly recommend it. I wrote a review of it shortly after it came out in the Founders Journal. So when we get all of those old Founders Journal back online, you'll be able to read that review there. But I do remember starting off that review by saying, this is a book that needs to be studied, not just read, but Uh studied by every pastor, every evangelical pastor. Yeah, he this this book is not an it's not an easy read. It's something you need to take time with. Um, but the way he identifies modernity and the way he articulates um, the 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 manner in which people think today was so helpful to me yeah. to identify all kinds of issues um, that are going on in our world, and then and then how. The church should function in the midst of this cultural moment. How pastors should be pastoring yeah. in the midst of this and, world. And underline it. He says the problem is we've taken theology, and it's not just that we've jettisoned it and said, "Oh no, we're not going to be theological people anymore." Is we've taken it, taken it out of the center, and we've moved it to the edge, so mm-hmm. that we still can look over there. So, oh no, no, we haven't given up doctrine. We haven't given up the authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. We still have it, uh-huh. but it's not operating the way that it should operate, the way that it has operated, where he draws on history, particularly the history of the Puritans, and showing how theology just um, was so uh, central to their understanding of the world and especially yep. to pastoral ministry in the life of the church. Right, and a part of his contention here is that uh, a philosophy of uh, modernity or a philosophy of humanism um, has infiltrated the church, has has discipled the church, mm-hmm. uh, where the church should be grounded in God's word, grounded in the transcendent, uh, should be theological in disrupting the world with God's truth. What's happened is uh, the church has has been discipled in the other direction and kind of has turned into those who are uh, mere managers and in, in kind of infected with individuality. He deals with this and one of his just a brief quote when he's talking about modern individuality. He says the modern children of the enlightenment have themselves taken God's place. Mm. So so we have we have created a god of our own imagination. We've turned from worshiping God and now um, the individual now is God. The people are God, and therefore the people create their own standards, create their own um, traditions. So we've got our, our ethical system, but it's flowing out of, of, of who, who I am rather than looking to the transcendent, looking to who God is. You know, a lot's happened since 1993 or the early 90s, late 80s, whenever he was thinking about writing this, starting this project. And so in some sense, we can say there's been a real upgrade, and we can praise God for that because it is not uncommon now to recognize that theology is important. And our seminaries, certainly evangelical seminaries, and let's just limit it to Southern Baptist seminaries, there has been a real upgrade in all of our seminaries to uh, move away from the mere pragmatic into a more robust commitment to orthodoxy and, and understanding of doctrinal uh, precision. W- when I went through Southwestern Seminary and um, finished up my MDiv in, what was it, 83, I think, uh, you could get a Master of Divinity and only take six hours of theology. 
that was all that was required. Mm. You know, I took more and other people would typically take more if they were serious about theology. But can you imagine only having to have six hours of theology mm. and then be declared a master? What were the other classes? Um, how to grow your church. You know, there was a lot of pragmatic leadership. That was a big deal. Just kind of coming in vogue mm -hmm. then. Mm -hmm. Um, I, and I, I did quite honestly, there's a couple of those courses I had to take that I made a deal with the professors. If they would just let me do the work, I didn't have to sit in the classrooms <laughs> and, and I just show up to take the tests and then turn in the papers and because it was just painful, mm -hmm. it's painful, but by God's grace, you're not going to have that type of experience anymore today or much more today. But but I think what is happening is we have not taken nearly as seriously as we think we or as, as we think we have the role of theology in our thinking, mm -hmm. the, the role of understanding that the Bible does and teach does indeed teach a way of looking at the world, a way of thinking about ministry and implementing ministry that at its heart is theological. Yeah, the problem the the problem with the situation that we're in, and I. It seems to me we're in this we're in the situation now that Wells was talking about back then. And the problem is it's it's like the air that you breathe. You don't realize how funky it is. Yeah. You don't realize that 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 we have a problem going on. Um, one of these quotes where he's talking about the the way that the pastor has has been discipled by the world and the pastor is not now bringing God's truth, bringing theology um, to the human situation. He identifies this on page 248. This is what he says. And so the professionalized pastor has often reduced the uncontrollable world of God's truth by procedure, using committees to diminish the church and psychological techniques to diminish the soul. Mm. Rough truth gives way to smooth practice. The transcendent gives way to the procedural. The jerks and moments of discovery when God's world illumines our own give way to moments in which our world our world brings his into tame submission. Mm. So it's the, the pastors to be there to bring God's truth. And there's going to be a jerk. There's, there's going to be, oh, I need correction. I need mm. course correction. And sometimes that's going to be uh, more abrupt than others. But he is, can, he's, must be meditating on the word of God, bringing that truth. But what happens is, you know, you just turn into a kind of a manager, you know, right? Pr procedural. And oh, we can, we know. I know how to grow this. I know what what's in right now. And we, you could probably think through a list of things right now that that if you do them in your church, if you hold this kind of conference, this mm -hmm. kind of event, this kind of Q and A, oh, well, that's that's hot. You know, people are going mm -hmm. to come. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what's happening. You're just kind of getting in step with what the world's doing. It's interesting that he titles that chapter on ministry the new disablers. Mm. And I love on the very next page from the one you read, uh, he makes this statement about how sentimentality has taken over in ministry. And again, we see this today under the guise of pietism. He said it, it's this kind of sentimentality that wants to listen without judging, that has opinions but little interest in truth, that is sympathetic but has no passion for that which is right. It is under this guise of piety, indeed of professionalization, that pastoral unbelief lives out its life. Mm. And if he were saying this today from the vantage point, which he's criticizing, he might tack on, I could be wrong. Mm. I could be wrong. What do you mean? Well, hey, you know, we, we think it's probably not best for women to serve as pastors or preach in uh, church services, but uh, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Uh -huh. You know, it's like, oh, oh, yeah, you know, this is my opinion, but I could be wrong. I mean, what does the Bible say? Now, I, again, some opinions let's hold with an open hand. 
Right. Absolutely. But where the Bible's clear, let's don't be embarrassed. Let's don't back up. Let's just say, hey, mm. this is what God says. Mm. So No Place for Truth is a great work. Um, again, one that is going to take a little time. So set aside some time. If you want to understand uh, the world that we live in here in America, 21st century, if you want to know what the church is supposed to be doing, and especially what pastors are supposed to be doing, pick up David Wells' No Place for Truth. Of course. We could be wrong. When we come back, you know that line. When we come back, uh, we're going to be talking about the law of God. We're going to talk about what it means to fear God. Amen. Founders Ministries has been able to do what we've been doing for 35 years because people have joined with us and become part of our family. Today, I'm inviting you to become a part of the Founders Fam as well. Become a Founders Alliance member. You can do this at different levels as you contribute to the work that Founders is engaged in. By going to founders.org, you can see that you can give at the trowel level, you can give at the shield level, or you can give at the sword level. And if you give at any level, we're going to send you a Founders package of materials. We have other exclusive material that we would make available to you as well as you contribute to help us build this ministry for the glory of God. Welcome back to The Sword and the Trowel. Uh, here in segment three, we are working through God's Word, considering uh, how then shall we live? What would God have us do? What are His commands to us? And uh, today, uh, we're wanting to look at a command to fear God. Uh, particularly, uh, we see this in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. It says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Um, are we to fear God, Tom? Well, you know, that sounds a little bit harsh. I think maybe what Jesus is talking about here is you really ought to be respectful toward God because, you know, after all, he can throw you into hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about this. And people don't like this because of their view of God. I mean, they think yeah. God should not be a God who is fearsome, but indeed he is a consuming fire, the mm. Bible says. And this is not just an incidental teaching in Scripture. There's over 150 passages in the Bible that tell us specifically to fear God or fear the Lord. Mm. And then there's dozens of more passages that describe him yep. in his awesome fearfulness. Yeah, this is, a, this is another application of what we talked about in the first segment. It is not whether but which. It's not whether you're going to fear. You just need to help people understand this. It's not whether you're going to fear. It's uh, which which person are you going to fear? Which being are you going to fear? You're going to either fear man or you're going to fear God. And right. Jesus says, don't fear man. Don't don't let your, your fear run in that direction. And don't fear the devil. Your fear is not to run in that direction. You are to fear God. Well, and then he gives us good reason. Why? Because God's worthy of our fear. He mm -hmm. is the one who is awesome. He is the one who is not to be trifled with. Yeah. He is holy, considering all these passages. Um, again, we, we kind of live in a time where people want to detach the Old Testament from the New Testament and say, oh, that God in the Old Testament, he was so... He was, he was a fearful God, yeah. he was a vengeful God, a wrathful God, but the God in the New Testament's not. Well, that's not what the Scripture shows us. Sure, yeah, you touch it, you reach out and touch the ark in the Old Testament, and God would strike you down. But in the New Testament, you lie to the Holy Spirit. In the book yeah. of Acts, what happens? God strikes you down. You come to the Lord's table in an inappropriate manner, uh, God strikes you down. God is a holy God. He mm -hmm. is not like us. He is, he is altogether other. He's altogether different 
than we are, and we should fear him. And Jesus teaches more about hell than he does about heaven. And so the whole concept and reality of hell is uh, a reminder that our God is a, a fearsome God, a God worthy of being feared. Now, we, we need to qualify, too. That doesn't mean there, there's to be this uh, dread like a criminal would have of a policeman. Yeah, or like a, like a child would have for a drunken father but who's that's in rage. Right. Yeah, that's not it at all. Um, there is a right way for people to fear dread. If you're an unbeliever and you're living in God's world, breathing his air, eating his food, living in rebellion to him, then yeah, that kind of dread is right. That servile, slavish fear is right because you are in danger of the very God who's created you casting your body and soul in hell. But for Christians, that's not the kind of fear that we are to have. Mm -hmm. God, the God who can do that is the God we fear. So it's like a child of a policeman. You know, you're not a criminal, and so you don't fear your dad the way the criminal who's committing a crime fears your dad, but you realize your dad still is that authority. Your dad still has that power. Your dad still is able to do all the things that a policeman mm -hmm. can do. Uh, we, we get glimpses of this throughout the Scripture, but perhaps the, the one of the clearest is at Sinai. When God spoke the Ten Commandments mm -hmm. and the people feared, Moses sees the people, you know, they, they say, don't let God speak to us anymore. You talk to us. And Moses says, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and you may not sin. Yeah. Don't fear. God's doing this so that you will fear. Uh -huh. And so that there has to be different kinds of fear. And uh, historically, our our uh, forefathers have taught this in terms of the uh, the loving kind of filial fear of a son toward his father versus that servile slavish fear of a criminal to the magistrate against whom he's committed his crimes. Right. Um, we could see this rooted back in the third commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is... This is a call for us to reverence God mm -hmm. in the way that we live our lives. And reverence really is its something that <laughs> the, the church is not portraying well. Like right. Connected even to the second segment that we talked about this book, there's just been this trivializing of our Christianity, this uh, humanizing of our services. You know, we're, we're, we're portraying to uh, the world that God's kind of like a take it or leave it. You kind of come yeah. as you are kind of thing. Yeah. Um, when we're entering in, uh, in our worship into his dreadful holiness, and we're, we're living in this world, which yeah. is his, and he rules over it. He reigns over it. And so to cultivate this fear, we, we need a, a doctrine of God. We need to recover this doctrine mm -hmm. of God and understand really who he is. Yeah. And that the danger people see is, well, good night. You know, you're, you're making God dreadful and we, who would want to love a God like that? No, we need to take God as he is the way he's revealed himself to be and then be stunned that this God loves us, is for yeah. us. This God gave up his son for us. Mm. This God's reconciled us. This God is our God. Mm. Amen. Hey, so we have an event at the SBC. Yeah, we do. And we would love for you to come to it. Uh, it is a Founders Seminar, so come out to the convention a day early. June 10th. June 10th on a Monday, Mature Manhood in an Immature Age. Weston Hotel. Check out founders.org. You can find information about that. Do register for it. Share it around the internet. And we'll see you at the SBC. Thanks for being with us here at the Sword and the Trial today.